is my co-host Jeff Kane. You can find me on Twitter at Bobby underscore K91. You can follow him at Boston Fat Guy. And of course, you can and should be following Inside the Hoodie on Twitter at ITH underscore FV. This is all brought to you by the FanView Network. So special shout out to Mike Nickel, Brendan Joyce, and everyone who makes this weekly program possible. Jeff, Let's get right down to it. Some breaking news came out today. I don't know if you want to call it surprising or not, but it did just happen not long before we went on the air. Gerard Mayo seemingly announcing his retirement, certainly announcing that he is leaving the Patriots, at least from a playing standpoint. He's donned a uniform for the last time. It's crazy to me, Jeff, how quickly – he went from being an all-pro and a pro bowler to having all kinds of injuries, three straight seasons on injured reserve, and now at 29 years old, he's seemingly out of the league. Yeah, you know, you got a guy that uh, was the number 10 overall pick in the 2007 draft. Um a pick acquired by the uh, Patriots when they traded uh, first rounder to the San Francisco 49ers the year before. They had the number seven pick drop down and selected him. And listen, between 2010 and 2012, this guy was probably the best uh, middle linebacker in the NFL, uh, right up there with Patrick Willis. Of course, Patrick Willis announced his retirement last year. Now you had Gerard Mayo. Uh, so you look at it, and it's unfortunate that these. Um, He's stepping down, but you know what? Injuries take a toll on their body, and this is what happens. This is what happens when you play in the NFL. You know, he's uh, torn the pectoral muscle twice and the patella tendon once. So he now, uh, you know, we're in the digital age as we come to you live here on Periscope on the FanView Network, and and he announces his retirement via, um, you know, Instagram today. So um, expected it to happen. Yeah, but what, one thing that's really nice is the Patriots uh, don't have to decline the option and basically make him a free agent. He made the choice for them, and they're going to save roughly $7 million on their cap space. Yeah, they'll save somewhere between 6 and $7 million, which is nice. They can do a lot with that financial flexibility. We'll get to that in just a second, Jeff. But first, my question is, while Gerard Mayo may have played his last game as a Patriot, do you think he'll remain within the Patriots organization? There is an opening at that linebacker coach's position. Dante Hightower said before the AFC championship game, he thinks that Gerard Mayo could step in right now and be a defensive coordinator, that he's that smart and his leadership skills are that impressive. 
while that may be a bit of a biased exaggeration, do you think Gerard Mayo now immediately transitions into a member of the Patriots coaching staff? I would love to see that happen. And there is a little precedence here for New England Patriots or actually Bill Belichick linebackers who have transitioned into coaches. First, you had Pepper Johnson, who, of course, uh, was with the New York Giants and Bill Belichick. He was on the Cleveland staff uh, for the uh, for Bill Belichick. Of course, he also made it onto uh, the Patriots staff as well. Now Mike Vrabel, uh, a linebackers coach in Houston. So, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a bad transition for him to be a linebackers coach here in New England. And what better guy to have out there than someone who played at such a high-quality level for so many years, you know, nine years in the NFL, unfortunately, last three, uh, as we said, with injuries. But uh, he was a coach on the field, uh, you know, had that green dot on his helmet. Uh, his second year in the league, you know, voted a captain of the team. His second year in the league uh, really took over for when, uh, you know, Teddy Bruschi retired um, to become that that leader of the defense. Now, he wasn't as big of a vocal leader, uh, but really has the smarts. Belichick has come out and called him one of the smartest linebackers he's ever coached. Um, so, yeah, I can see it happening. Will it happen? We'll see. But this is the guy that, that loves football. Bring him in. Let him play. See what happens. Jeff, the way that I look at Gerard Mayo's legacy is someone who bridged the gap in terms of Patriots great linebackers going from the Teddy Brewskis, Willie McGinnis's, Mike Vrabel's, those generations, that era, into Mayo holding down the fort, at times by himself, you look at him playing next to the likes of Adelius Thomas, who it did not work out here. You look at him playing next to Pierre Woods. There were some names where he really had to solidify the position by himself. And then now you segue to the Patriots having two studs at that level of the field in Dante Hightower, and Jamie Collins. So I view his legacy through that lens of someone who held down the fort and bridged the gap from one era of Patriots great linebackers to what is quickly becoming the next great era of Patriots linebackers. How do you view Gerard Mayo's legacy? About the same way, you know, bridges that gap. Um, You know, he never... Uh, he was a tackling machine. He was never really a turnover machine. He was never a big sacking guy. I mean, he had, had 11 sacks and, you know, he hit his nine years in the NFL. But tackling machine really got out there, sideline to sideline, did some great things. I remember, uh, you know, 2008, you know, he'd turn around, you'd get 16 tackles here, 20 tackles there. He was a, a, a tackling machine. Now, he, uh, he helped um, Donta Hightower and Jamie Collins learn this defense and with him retiring now, this legacy uh, remains that he's, you know, learned from the best in Brewski, um, you know, basically coming out. Uh, his f- rookie year was Brewski's final year. Passes that on, and now the savings may allow the Patriots to turn around and sign Jimmy Collins and Dante Hightower to big deals. And. This money can be used in so many different ways, Jeff. I'm glad you bring that up because they can decide to use it towards those two contracts and making sure they get done. They could use this money theoretically to sign their entire draft class to show you how substantial these cap savings are. 
And they can also even use it if they want to go after a couple of free agents or if they are, in fact, going to target, I don't know, let's say Matt Forte, who we talked about on this show in a couple of our off-season episodes about whether or not he's a realistic target, whether or not he's an appropriate target, or the Patriots should set their sights on different running backs. But it just goes to show you how much the Patriots can do with this money being freed up by Gerard Mayo retiring. Oh, it's huge. Absolutely huge. And, you know, you, we've already talked about Donta Hightower. We've already talked about, uh, you know, um, Jamie Collins, both of them, which are going to need to get their deals redone. But also Chandler Jones, his deal could be redone. Uh, Malcolm Butler, um, even though he'll be an exclu- exclusive rights free agent or restricted free agent at the end of the end of next year, um, you don't want to put it out there that you might lose them. So uh, cap hit that cap right now looks to be about $13.5 million before they do any other moves. So Patriots are in some good, good shape here, and they need some pieces on this team. Everyone sits there and says, oh, you have Tom Brady, you have Bill Belichick, but they do need some pieces on the offensive side of the ball to basically turn this into you know not only a division winner and going to a – uh, hopefully a sixth straight AFC championship game, but also making it back to the Super Bowl and winning it. That's right, Jeff. They've spent a lot of their assets on the defensive side of the football. Now it's time to focus on the offensive side with defensive priorities really just being lock up Dante Hightower and Jamie Collins and address the Akeem Hicks situation. Those are, I would say, the two biggest Things from that perspective, Chandler Jones, you can even wait a season to decide on, and that's probably the best move for the Patriots rather than locking him up now or moving on from him this offseason. As we look at things from an NFL scope, we're not that far removed from the Super Bowl, and we haven't had a chance to discuss this just yet. I'm curious, Jeff, to get your biggest takeaways from this past NFL season. A couple things. I mean, defense is still alive in the NFL. Um, you know, you watch that Super Bowl. Um, I was rooting for the Broncos um, at the time because uh, of the way that I, I, I view football history. Um, I would have changed my rooting uh, around a little bit with recent events. Uh, we won't really get into that. But defense is still huge. You look at Carolina Panthers, who had an excellent defense. You look at the Denver Broncos, whose defense absolutely took over the AFC Championship game, and then the Super Bowl, and defense is huge. You saw what happened uh, this year with the Patriots defense. The Patriots defense kept them in a lot of games that uh, they really shouldn't have been in, um, you know, once the Patriots lost, uh, you know, Julian Edelman uh, for the last uh, seven weeks of the season, and they lost Danny Amendola for a couple games, and you know they they lost uh, Lewis. So you really look at it and you say to yourself, defense is still out there. And you know it, it's funny because everyone makes fun of um, Peyton Manning and his noodle arm, but he he won his second Super Bowl. And I I was watching last night um, a replay uh, that I recorded off of NFL Network of Super Bowl Thirty Six, and that game really reminded me a lot of Super Bowl 50 in the fact that, you know, the first touchdown by the Patriots and the Broncos was scored uh, via a uh, defensive uh, defensive player scoring a touchdown. Of course, Von Millen makes the strip sacks, uh, and it was Sylvester Williams who brought it in. 
uh, in the game against the the Rams, it was Ty Law returning a touchdown uh, on an interception. And you know what's kind of funny is because I was looking at it and I said, watching the game as Mike Vrabel came around and and, and tackled Kurt Warner, he hit him in the he hit him in the face, Max. So I'm like, oh, that nowadays that would be called back. But you know what? Von Miller hit uh, Cam Newton in the face, Max, and it wasn't called back. So defense still does win championships, and the running game still does win championships because, let's face it, um, Peyton Manning didn't exactly have an outstanding stellar Super Bowl, but uh, C.J. Anderson uh, ran the ball and ran the ball well um, and and was able to do it. He kept them in the game, kept the clock moving, kept the chains moving, um, as he did against the Patriots. I mean, he did not have a – spectacular game against the Patriots, but broke a 30-yard run on a fourth and one that really changed the complexion of the AFC Championship game, changed the complexion of the Super Bowl as well. Yeah, he didn't fumble the football. He made just enough plays. So while Denver didn't generate that much offense, they generated just enough. And they took advantage of Carolina's mistakes in order to help put points on the board as their defense carried them to a Super Bowl. I do like the comparison there that in Super Bowl 36, Patriots score first touchdown is that tie law pick six. And Jeff, they almost did call that penalty on Mike Vrabel. Wasn't sure if there was going to be some laundry on the field on that play and they were going to wipe the points off the board. Luckily, they didn't. They didn't do the same for Denver. And so as a result, both points scored right there, were able to stand. Here's my biggest takeaway from this past NFL season, and it has it was formed and solidified long before the Super Bowl was played, and that is to look around at the lack of quality around the league. It was such a watered-down product. Jeff, you mentioned several times throughout this season how the Patriots' strength of schedule was not that impressive, and one of the ways that you solidified that argument was comparing it to and bringing up the gauntlet stretch they had last season. Six games against opponents who, if we take a look now, the Chicago Bears, not that they were that good last season, but that was where the gauntlet began. And they, in some regards, they took a step forwards, but they were terrible this season. The Colts, obviously the Andrew Luck injury was a giant factor, but they were bad this season. They couldn't even win a mediocre at best, I would say putrid AFC South division. You look at Denver wins the Super Bowl, so you gotta give them props, even though it was just it was a very different team. The defense was better. The offense was significantly worse than the time the Patriots played them. You look at the Chargers, that's a team that took a step back. So I think you get where I'm going with this. You know, Green Bay is another team that took a step back. And that was the only one that managed to beat the Patriots in that six-game stretch last season. But just, it was hard for a team to really have a difficult schedule, maybe a few games or a a short stretch here and there. But just the lack of quality around the league was apparent from the beginning of the season, and play didn't improve. There's so many factors in that, from lack of practice time to the fact that the CBA – incentivizes teams instead of spending on a veteran player who's over 30 to try and develop undrafted free agents, which becomes even more difficult with the lack of practice time. And of course, Jeff, 
maybe it's too early to, to see the impact of declining participation in Pop Warner football is having, but maybe it's not. There's got to be players by now who have reached the college ranks. Maybe some of them, maybe there's a, a small percentage who have already reached the NFL level. And I think that even if it's not a factor in a watered-down product at the game's highest level just yet, that becomes even more concerning because then you look at what's coming down the pipe and saying, we're going to have even less talent to choose from. They're going to be less developed. So I think there's a lot of concerns for the NFL and that this season had to be a red flag for them. Oh, I agree with you 100%. Also, the officiating this year uh, was absolutely putrid. Um, you know, and not that any one game really was changed by an outcome. You know, officials do these things. They're human. They make mistakes. But you just think, you know, this was the first year that I can remember uh, officials getting taken off of one game and put it onto another. Um, you know, officials missing calls. No one knowing what a catch is anymore. Knowing, no one no one knowing what a, uh, you know, pass interference is anymore. No one knowing uh, what offensive pass interference it was. It, remember at one point during the, uh, the season, uh, Rob Gronkowski had been called five or six pass interference calls, and all of a sudden he comes out on Twitter and, and, and says something about it, and I don't remember another offensive pass interference call being called against him. Um, you know, it's it just – I'm not saying there's any conspiracy theories out there or not, uh, but the officiating took a real big step back. It did, and that's a good topic for another time. I just I don't know how much we want to dive into that, but that's another that's another issue that has a lot of layers to it from the ever changing rule book that makes it harder on these officials to keep up. I don't think some of these officials know what a catch is or isn't, and then you just look at the fact that they are not full time employees. I've heard people point out that they chose not to be full-time employees, and my response to that is I'm sure that it was difficult for them to turn down the NFL's low-balling offer. You know, if the NFL stepped up to the plate, then these referees might feel otherwise. But for now, that's the reality of the situation, that it behooves them to not be full-time employees. And that impacts the product on the field on Sundays, just like the fact that there's less talent around the league does. But now we move on, Jeff, and we, we look at the NFL season in review. Now we're going to look at this show, A Season in Review, and we're going to go to a segment called Backpats and Headshakes. It's very simple. We're going to each point out one prediction, assessment, bit of analysis that we kind of impressed ourselves by getting right during the week. And then we're going to go to something we said where we stuck our foot in our mouth. So we're going to start by making each other feel good. We're going to start with the back pats. <laughs> I'll kick it off, Jeff. And for me, I went back and I looked through our episodes on this show and the history of this show as we're still in our first year here. So it wasn't that hard to do. And for me, I was pleasantly surprised by my strategy assessments I got the vast majority of them right, not just the majority, but I got most of them right. So it turns out that I kind of know what I'm talking about just a little bit, not really. And I'll give you an example just to validate my claim here. I discussed leading into the divisional round against Kansas City that I felt the Patriots offense would attack the Chiefs defense 
similar to that, how they approached Seattle's D in the Super Bowl last year. And it turned out to be exactly what New England did. And it helped them earn a victory in advance to the AFC Championship, where unfortunately things did not go there well. But we're sticking on me here. We're not talking about the Patriots. We're talking about the fact that, as it turns out, I was able to give some solid analysis. So I'm just going to go ahead right there and don't want to strain a shoulder or anything or pull a muscle, but I'm feeling pretty proud of myself for that one. What about you, Mr. Kane? Well, if I'm going to go back batting, I guess uh, I, I, I guess I'm going to sit there and talk about uh, you know when I came out saying that uh, Julian Edelman was the most important uh, piece to the New England Patriots offense. I even wrote an article about it on ESPN New Hampshire being uh, Julian Edelman Z Man uh, for the New England Patriots, and we saw that in the uh, in the game against the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, how much difference having him out there, allowing him to, um, you know, move all around really help the offense. Um, so I'll give myself a big backpack for that, you know, right there, right. That, uh, you know, I've discussed in ad nauseum really that even without, you know, the best tight end in the NFL and, and Rob Gronkowski, they can still win. Um, but without Julian Edelman, they, they really were bad this year. They were, and they, they kind of turtled down the stretch and it cost them home field advantage. And we saw how that played out, but give yourself a pat on the back, Jeff. I can tell you from experience now that it feels good. Now something that might feel like a kick in the pants is revisiting memory lane for some stuff. We said that we wish we could take back again, all started off and I, I need a Maya Copa, a Mia Copa to, Carolina Panthers fans because all season I just did not buy into this team being a true championship contender in the beginning of the season. I remember telling people there's they're going to play good defenses and those defenses are going to take Greg Olson out of the equation and I just don't think that Cam Newton alone can beat you. But then we saw how good this offensive line was and we saw how good of a running game they actually had. And then as we're getting ready to go into the playoffs, I said on our final three episodes of the regular season, firmly believe Carolina's the third best team in the NFC behind the Cardinals and Seahawks. Well, they beat both. And even though Seattle came back at one point, they were blowing them out. They blew out Arizona from start to finish. So I was Dead wrong on that one. Carolina Panthers fans, you have every right to come at me for that one. I know your team didn't finish the job off like you would have hoped for, but it really was an incredible season for Cam Newton and the boys. And I took them for granted. I, I doubted them every step of the way, and I, I'm not too big to admit that they proved me wrong. Well, if I'm going to go with uh, – what are we calling this, this segment here? Head uh, Take backs. Head shakes. All right, so I'm going to go with head shakes. Um, right uh, preseason, I, I came on saying that the uh, the Seattle Seahawks were done. That uh, they were gonna they they were not gonna win the division. I was right there, but I said they would miss the playoffs. And at the beginning of the season, it really looked that way. I said Pete Carroll and that bad play call um, on you know the second and goal that Malcolm Butler intercepted. Uh, would absolutely turn um, the 
favor around in that locker room about how they feel about Pete Carroll uh, going back to 2006 in the Rose Bowl uh, when instead of handing the ball off to Reggie Bush, he doesn't even have Reggie Bush in the uh, on the field and hands it off. Um, uh, damn, I can't Lindell remember the guy's White. name. Lendell White, thank you very much. And, and, and that really changed things for USC. Um, so I figured the same thing was going to happen this year. Started out bad, um, but sure enough, uh, you know, uh, they turned it around. The defense turned it around, and Russell Wilson turned around. Russell Wilson, I I was really impressed with him uh, the last eight weeks of the season. When they got to the playoffs, they they, they weren't the same team, uh, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that they didn't have the twelfth man behind them. Yeah, it was it was interesting to see because they are an enigma. And they generally try to pace themselves. I think we've seen the last two seasons that they get off to slow starts and that confidence, even if it might waver at times, it never completely goes away. They still feel like they're good enough and rightfully so to get back into the playoff picture. And two years in a row they have, and they've, they've got it rolling in last year or two years ago, if you want to say now it was a result of the defense, but this most recent season, it was largely a result of Russell Wilson's development from the pocket. And you think if they still had Jimmy Graham, would that have made a difference or not? But Jeff, you said it got up to a bad, a bad start this season. Let's, let's rewind to week one in St. Louis, where first game back from that questionable decision from Pete Carroll in the Super Bowl, he rolls the dice again, makes another questionable call. It backfires, and it costs Seattle the game. Not the best way for Pete the Poodle to start off this season, given the events of Super Bowl Forty Nine. Do you think that has a, a a reason to do why Marshawn Lynch showed up the uh, the hanging cleats that uh, you know that, that Pete Carroll doesn't know how to use a running back like that? No, but I think it definitely ticked him off at the time. We all know that there's a higher probability of punching it in if they had just given it to Beast Mode. Instead, he's going to be able to eat all the Skittles he wants now as he rides off into the sunset, Jeff, as we go from looking in the rear view to looking back out through the windshield. What constitutes, in your mind, a successful offseason for the New England Patriots? Well, first things first, they they really need to address um, the cast of characters around Tom Brady. Um, you know, they cannot, cannot go into another season relying on Tom Brady and his aging right armless. We all don't want to admit it, but the man is going to be 39 in August. We don't want to admit it. You know, we, 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 we just sit there and go, he's going to be fine, but – they need to be able to come out with some semblance of balance. Now, I'm not saying they need to turn around and turn into a power running team and run the ball, you know, 55% of the time. But if they can, they can actually have a running game out there that um, defenses have to at least respect, maybe not fear, but respect, so that if you have a fourth down and one, um, you know, at your opponent's 29-yard line, and you do a play-action pass with a backside screen uh, coming open, um, the defense doesn't go diving after the wide receiver who's sneaking out of the backfield. They, they actually, you know, respect the run. Denver didn't have to respect the run. And, you, and people can sit there all day long and talk about, 
oh, well, who are they going to hand the ball off to and this and that? It, it doesn't matter. You, you have to try. You have to try. And, and that's one of the things. They need to come out here and they need to turn around and get some extra offensive pieces to fit around Tom Brady. Uh, you know, the way I look at it, um, my number one is getting a running back. Now, whether that be a Matt Forte, who I would love, but I do not believe he's going to end up in a Patriots uniform. Uh, James Starks, I wouldn't mind ending up in a Patriots uniform. Uh, you know, whether it be a um, any, any of these guys, Chris Ivory, a back that can actually be feared a little bit, that's number one on my list of a successful offseason. Off uh, stepping up the offensive line play and developing and breaking news out earlier this today was that Dante Scarnecchio was coming back. If he can develop uh, Trey Jackson, Shaq Mason, uh, Klein, that's going to be huge. So then I'm looking at it and, you know, maybe my 2A compared to my 2B, but my 2A um, is a swing tackle, uh, a tackle that can play either side because uh, it, Marcus Cannon is not that guy. I expect him to be released this offseason. Um you know, maybe Lee Adrian Waddle could be that guy. He's had some success in the NFL. Um, so that's my my 2A, maybe 2B. And then I, I look back at the wide receiver position. Um, I'm on record right now as thinking that Brandon LaFell's 2014 season was the exception, not the rule. I expect him to be released, um, especially with the Patriots signing Keyshawn Johnson. But they need to go back and they need to address that outside wide receiver. Now, it doesn't need to be a deep threat, okay? There's so many people out there saying, oh, well, we need a deep threat. We need someone who can stretch the field. Listen, at 39 years old, that's not Tom Brady's strength anymore. We need someone who can run a 15-yard out that can, you know, run the entire route tree. So whether they, they turn around and, you know, get someone in the draft, and unfortunately the last two years have been so deep in the draft, um, you know, that they didn't go out and select one because they had selected Josh Boyce and Aaron Dobson, both who have had real trouble staying on the field and staying on this roster. So um, whether they go out and, and get someone in the draft, um, which is a little bit of a hindrance now with, uh, you know, not having a first-round draft pick, or if they turn around and grab someone uh, off the uh, free agent wire. And uh, I'm looking at a guy like Muhammad Sanu. I think he would fit very well uh, in the New England Pages thing. So, I want a guy that can get out there uh, on the, you know, outside the numbers and, and really make things work. You had to go up my boy Jojo like that, Jeff. You no, know I hate the guy. You know, I hate the guy. Okay. Brandon LaFell, even, even if I have to die on this hill, I will. I believe last season was a product of injuries and the fact that his routes take longer to develop and the offensive line simply couldn't afford him. That kind of time. I do completely agree, though, that, look, the deep ball has never been Tom Brady's strength. And so, you know, you outside, of one, outside of one season with Randy Moss. Yes, Jeff, I hear you. And so I, I think you, you keep that tandem together. He's not that expensive. It's, it's not a big cap hit by any means. He's got the rapport and familiarity with Tom Brady and the Patriots playbook already. He's shown he can be productive. And he gives you – he might not have the quickness or the speed on the perimeter that the Patriots lack, but that's what Keyshawn Martin's sitting behind him for. So I say hold on to my boy JoJo LaFell, and he's going to prove the doubters like Mr. Kane over here wrong. But 
you are right with your first point that they need to establish a reliable ground game. And Dante Scarnecchia figures to be a significant part of that equation, helping this offensive line, especially the younger guys, develop. I also think it would behoove them to try and try and target Sebastian Vollmer's replacement in the draft this year. I, I think it's time to bring that player on board, especially because while I like Adrian Waddle, I don't view him as a swing tackle. I think you're better off just keeping him in one spot and then you bring on someone who you think can play right tackle or maybe someone who has some versatility and can be a swing tackle. But I think now would be a good time to start targeting and developing Sebastian Vollmer's heir apparent. And as far as the ground game goes and the actual running back position, there's a lot of possibilities out there. I know a lot of Patriots fans would be disappointed. I don't think we can completely rule out the possibility of LeGarrette Blount returning. Quite frankly, I would like an upgrade at the position. I don't think you can have a run. You can bring him back knowing there were games where even when he was in the mix that you went into certain games looking at certain defensive fronts and saying, we're just going to punt when it comes to running the football today. That's You go back and look at how they've lost most of their playoff games since 2007, and it has to do with a combination of the offensive line and a lack of a reliable ground game. So I think that is obviously priority number Coach, one for this Patriots team this offseason. Yes, Jeff? It's pussy ball, man. It's pussy ball. Josh McDaniels, it's, it's pussy ball. I just wrote an article about why I think he should be replaced. It's finesse offense. They've turned into the the Colts. We always used to make fun of, um, you know, Peyton Manning and the Indianapolis Colts because when it came to January, uh, you know, they couldn't win because they weren't built to win in January. And, yes, I understand the Patriots won the Super Bowl last year, uh, you know, passing it against the uh, Ravens and passing it against the CL Seahawks. But when it came time to it, you had to come back not once but twice from 14 points down and you have to come back and have the greatest uh, fourth quarter in Super Bowl history uh, by a quarterback in Tom Brady and a miracle interception to win that game. Um, it's too finesse for me. Josh McDaniels needs to grow a set. It, it is too finesse, too soft of an offense. I think that a lot of Patriots fans were smacked in the face with that reality this season. And look, part of that – Super Bowl win last year was that LeGarrette Blount was effective when he was given the ball and that they did not have any semblance of that in the AFC championship game without LeGarrette Blount there and who knows how much of a difference he would have been able to make especially when you consider that two years ago in the AFC championship game against Denver in Denver he did nothing on the ground and it was apparent from the minute that game started, that he was not going to be effective. So that's part of the reason, again, why I think they need to upgrade. They have the money to go sign Matt Forte, who is a game changer in the backfield. And if he's true to his word, he has said that he prioritizes. It's all about winning for him right now with where he's at in his career. He, he's racked up the individual stats and accomplishments that it's not about the money. It's about the ring, and while that never means that it's not entirely about the money, 
I still think that there's a chance, I think a realistic possibility that Forte would take a bit of a discount to come to New England. It's a question of how much they are willing to spend at that position, which I would say should be influenced by how they've gone out in the playoffs again since 2007, and especially what happened this year in Denver. And yeah. then you look at some of the other backs out there. Chris Ivory figures to be more expensive than Matt Forte. So I, I think Forte is your guy. I don't think Alfred Morris is a great fit here. Joy Bell just became a free agent. I don't think that he's the right guy. I'm, I'm not impressed by him, to be honest. And so I, I just look at the crop of running backs out there. And sure, you could bring back LeGarrette Blount or go – with a, a less expensive option like James Starks, but I'm just not sure that does enough. And I think that when you have a chance to get a game changer at a realistic rate, that you, you've got to make that happen. Especially, like you said, we don't know what the future holds for Tom Brady and forget injuries. What about father time and the fact that he is going to catch up one day with Brady, who I know he's already started doing two days and working out like a maniac, but you just don't know when that day is going to come. So I think you maximize your opportunities to win Super Bowls where you have a quarterback who, in our opinion, is the greatest of all time. No, I agree with you 100% there, Bobby. And, and a couple things just going back to, um, you know, the running back situation here. A couple of crazy stats that really just popped up to me uh, the last couple of days doing a little um, digging around there. There's been 50 Super Bowls, um, and in those 50 Super Bowls, um, there has only been three teams that have won a Super Bowl that have averaged less than 100 yards per game as a team on the ground during the regular season. That was the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl five. It was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Super Bowl 37. It was the New York Giants uh, in Super Bowl 46. Um, that's kind of crazy there. Uh, the fact that no passing uh, yardage leader has ever won a Super Bowl um, is unbelievable to me. And that's, so that's a couple of things there. Now, going back to, you know, Matt Forte, should it be, uh, should it be Matt Forte or, or another guy? Um, you know, Patriots fans will always say, well, well the Patriots aren't going to spend uh, big money. Well, if history is to repeat itself, the last two times that the New England Patriots have lost in the AFC Championship game to the, uh, to the uh, Peyton Manning, They've turned around, and what they've done is they've gone out and they've spent some money. In 2006, they lost in Indianapolis. They turned around. They went out. They traded for Randy Moss. They traded for Wes Welker. They signed Adelius Thomas. They signed Dante Hightower. Uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Dante uh, Stallworth. Um, they made some moves in 2006. After the 2013 season, uh, when they lost in Denver, they went out. They spent the money. They they brought back Julian Edelman. Um, they went out and they, you know, uh, brought in Brandon LaFell and they brought in Darrell Revis and Brandon Browner. So they could turn out and spend the money. Then you look at that running game. The Patriots running game averaged three point seven, just under 3.7 yards per carry this year as a team. The last two times they've averaged that or less were 2003 and then 2006, excuse me, 2005. In 2003, they uh, after the season, they traded a second-round draft pick to the Cincinnati 
Bengals to get Corey Dillon, and they had an instant success in, uh, in 2004. Unfortunately, in 2005, he was a little bit injury-prone. They couldn't get the running game going, so they went out and drafted Lawrence Maroney in the first round. And, you know, in 2006 and 2007, Maroney was a good back. It was after that that he really wasn't good. So the writing is on the wall that the Patriots may spend some money and they may go out and get that back that could be pretty pretty good in this offense. And last thing, Bobby, on, on this is enough with this big back, passing back type of thing. Tips the hand way too much. Um, you know, you knew when LeGarrette Blount was in there that they were really not going to throw the ball. Um, I mean, excuse me, yeah, they, they were really not going to throw the ball uh, to a back like that. They would do some play action off that, but they knew it was – defenses knew that they were going to be running the ball there, and they never hand off to that passing back. I mean, I know they handed off 40-something times to, uh, you know, uh, Deion Lewis, but once Lewis was hurt, and you don't know if he's going to come back and be – you know, the, what he was he, because he just has never stayed healthy in his NFL career. But once Lewis was injured uh, and James White was out there, James White got about two or three carries a game. Um, it, it just tips the hand too much. Enough of the big back passing back. Just get out there and get all around backs. Yeah, and I know this is a side point, but with Dion Lewis, I told you from the beginning, Jeff, that you reminded me in the way he plays – of how Derrick Rose plays. And that's why I was always scared of him getting injured because those two guys put so much pressure on their knees with how aggressively they plant and cut and how frequently they're doing it. You know, Deion Lewis, for example, will make four cuts in the blink of an eye, and it's it's very hard for you to, to stay healthy playing that style, and it's why – He's had a history of injuries going all the way back to college when he was at Pittsburgh sharing a backfield with LaShawn McCoy. McCoy said even then that you could see the talent, but just, I mean, there's a reason that he got hurt and there's a reason that he continues to struggle to stay healthy. So I think he needs to find a way to change his playing style. I actually think he should look into the case of another NBA player, and that's Steph Curry, who came into the NBA with weak ankles and worked to change how he plays the game and knock on wood for Steph's and NBA fans across the world's fortune and their sake that he's been able to stay healthy now because he doesn't put as much pressure on his ankles anymore. And it's the same with Deion Lewis and the fact that he needs to alleviate some of that pressure that he's putting on his knees. And hopefully that makes a difference. I also think sharing that role with James White could and should make a difference for Lewis. So hopefully with what, what a good person he is and, you know, all the adversity that he's had to overcome to get to this point, hopefully he can stay healthy and can continue to be productive and especially for our sake can do so as a member of the New England Patriots. Now, another part of this offseason and what constitutes a successful offseason in my eyes is, of course, and we've touched on it at the top of the program, reaching new contracts with at least one of Jamie Collins and Dante Hightower and Jeff, the Patriots are in a position to spend and land a significant free agent, a free agent of note. And this will only help make it easier if they can come to terms with one, if not both of these stud linebackers, freeing up more cap space in the process, which again, 
puts them in a position where realistically, I'm not saying they will, but realistically put them in a position where they could not only sign Matt Forte, but if it's at the right rate and they've created enough financial flexibility, could also bring back Akeem Hicks. I like that. I like the effect of, of bringing back Akeem Hicks. Uh, really was a revelation uh, when they traded for him. And once he got, you know, into this defense and started learning, it was great. Um, you know, I, I look at it and, you know, you want to sign both Dante Hightower and Jamie Collins. I think Hightower is priority number one. Uh, not that he's, you know, any better than Jamie Collins, because I think they are two completely different type of linebackers, but two linebackers that you can build over the next five or six years with. But the fact that, uh, you know, him and his uh, fifth-year option are going to count as that $8 million, almost an $8 million hit against the cap. Uh, Jamie Collins being a second-round pick, he's just north of a million dollars against the cap. So if you can, uh, you know, re-sign Donta Hightower before free agency happens, give you you can you can take that cap hit of eight million dollars, get it down to three and a half to four million dollar range, save yourself an extra four million, and then you're creeping up on twenty million dollars in cap space. I like that, Jeff. I'm on board with that one. And now, as we expand from a micro view to a macro one. And we look at this upcoming NFL season. Jeff, what is a bold prediction you have for the 2016-2017 NFL campaign? Uh, my bold prediction is I got a couple. Number one is that the uh, New England Patriots will be back in full force. Um, and I believe they'll be back in the Super Bowl. Uh, number two, the Carolina Panthers are coming crashing down crashing down next season they are not going to make the playoffs next season um they're just not going to make it you look at the 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 history of super bowl losing teams the following year um it's awfully hard to go back and repeat they were 15 and 1 this year i would be very surprised if they win more than 10 or 11 games next year they're going to come crashing down and i think you know in that uh nfc south you're going to get a, a lot better play out of, uh, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers um, who are going to be up and coming. You never know. Maybe someday, uh, you know, Boston College's Matt Ryan actually puts it together and the Atlanta Falcons get better under second-year coach Dan Quinn. Um, and, and who knows with the, uh, um, you know, the other team, what happens there um, with the New Orleans Saints. They're in cap hell, uh, but they still have Drew Brees. I think that 11 wins – gets you that division. I think 10 wins could maybe even get you the NFC South. Well, so while I do agree, Jeff, there'll be some regression to the mean. Don't forget that this is a Carolina team that's getting Kelvin Benjamin back next season. So that's a big piece to add to this offense to help make it more dynamic. Jared Okotri is like 97 years old, so who knows if he'll still be <laughs> effective or not. But that, that is an elite defense, and they're getting a major weapon back on the offensive side of the ball. So, I, again, I, I think that they're still going to be a very good team, even though there likely will be some drop-off. My bold prediction, it's really just going to begin now. I think we're not going to see it fully come to a head until as early as the next offseason. But – I believe that having a team in Los Angeles is going to change the NFL landscape 
for one, Stan Kroenke, as we look at it from a Ram side and an ownership side of things, he really was kind of an invisible owner by all accounts until he became obsessed with getting his team out of St. Louis and putting them in Los Angeles in what is the number two market in the country. And now it becomes, does he once again fade into the background or is he going to be hell-bent as a very aggressive, very determined individual who's used to getting his way? Case in point, the Rams will be playing in Los Angeles next season. Is he going to be determined to make sure that this team gets to Los Angeles and is not a laughingstock, that they're successful, that they are competing for championships, that he's spending top dollar, et cetera, et cetera. And also the fact that with so much going on in Los Angeles, you've got to you've got to be motivated to keep this team relevant. It's a bit like Florida. I know the fan support is far superior in California, but just the fact that there's so much going on that it is easy, especially with all the other sports teams already well established and having strong fan bases, it would be easy for people in Los Angeles to not pay that much attention to the Rams once the novelty of having a football team again wears off if they're not putting out a successful product on the field. But then you look at agents, you look at the fact that we're in an era where players are more brand conscious than ever before. So I could really see this team moving to Los Angeles, changing the paradigm of the NFL. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and what caliber player is looking to say, I want to go play in Hollywood. Yeah, I like that. But, you know, if they're going to be relevant, they might want to get rid of uh, the most overrated coach in NFL history, Jeff Fish, Fisher, Mr. 8-8. Eight eight. It starts there with the guy whose reputation does not align with his record. He, he is Mr. 500, as you said. And on that note, we're going to go out. Hopefully we batted 1,000 tonight. We probably didn't, though, let's be honest. But we appreciate everyone who tuned in on Periscope. We appreciate the FanView Network, of course, for making this all possible. For Jeff Kane, I'm Bobby Kravitsky. Once again, you can follow us on Twitter, at Bobby underscore K91, at Boston Fat Guy. Follow the show inside the hoodie, at, in, at ITH underscore FV. And we will see you once again back in our normal time slot Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern next week. Until then, have a great week. Yeah.